This episode of The Untold Stories of Open Source is supported by the Linux Foundation's 2022 Jobs Report. The rumors are true. 93% of hiring managers have trouble finding professional developers with sufficient open source experience. And 69% of hiring managers are more likely to hire certified open source developers than those with less experience. Get more insights by downloading the free 2022 Jobs Report at linuxfoundation.org slash jobs report. The first time Patrick Dubois came into contact with open source was in the early stages of development of the Linux kernel, compiling it on floppies on his 486 machine. To tell you how long ago that was, the Intel 486 was introduced in 1989. It was the first chip in the line to include a built-in math coprocessor. Yeah, it was that long ago. He started with the kernel and then... (laughs) And, uh, you know, just studying kind of mach- uh, computer systems at that time, I think I couldn't study computer science because it was only around electronics. And uh, But that's kind of how I came across Linux as open source. I started with the kernel and then I learned more and more about compilers and being able to run my own programs. Patrick was an early adopter of computers, but one thing he missed was a community. In those days, he had to copy software over electronic bulletin board systems. But with the Linux kernel, he found it amazing that you could just get it on a CD-ROM and pass it around to friends. It was like amazing. It was like years later, but um, the fact that there was a sharing community and the Linux community... Um, of tools that I could just use, Uh, especially as a student. I know open source is not about being for free, but it tremendously helped me as a student at that time to be able to try new stuff, to learn new stuff, to dissect new stuff on the open source. So I guess that was my first... From the Linux Foundation Studios in New York City, this is the Untold Stories of Open Source. Each week, we choose an open source project or a person behind a popular open source initiative to uncover the untold stories and details about major open source initiatives. If you work in open source, and you do whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Stay with us. In 2009 in Ghent, Belgium, Patrick Dubois was a consultant, project manager, and agile practitioner. With that background, he founded the first DevOps Days conference, which is now a worldwide phenomenon with over 70 conferences a year taking place around the world. With his first foray into open source in the late 1980s, it wasn't all fun and games. There were frustrations along the way, too. On the open source. So I guess that was my first uh, getting to know with uh, the open source with all its frustrations about, oh, why is it not working on my machine? Why is it taking, like, uh, uh, you know, my girlfriend at the time, why is it taking you all nights? Why do you have to leave your computer on to compile stuff? Uh, and, and all kind of those frustrations. But the fact that you can run something 
on a machine and then kind of tweak it into you what you need what you wanted that was something powerful uh, of the open yes it was frustrating to him and his girlfriend who just couldn't grasp the concept of compile time but the fact that you could run something on a machine and then personally tweak it into something else that was amazing people were playing around with the idea a lot a radio show called hobby scoop coming out of Finland, would actually beep out computer code over the air. People would record it onto cassette tape and then pass that around via sneaker net. Some shows had as many as 120,000 listeners. Yeah, that, uh, even earlier, I remember we had a, a radio show in Holland where they would, uh, for one hour, send out um, beeps so everybody could record the beeps and actually have software downloaded because we didn't have the distribution network here in Europe as we, you know, at that time and BBS, SBS, you know, but modems were expensive. Telephone was expensive, uh, but the radio served like a, a great purpose of distributing this. And then obviously your mom came in and ruined the whole download of the program <laughs> over the audio, but Hey, it was fun. Time. Let's put that into perspective. In 1985, the top five songs on the Billboard Hot 100 were Careless Whisper by Wham, Like a Virgin by Madonna, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go by Wham, I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner, and I Feel For You by Shaka Khan. Yeah, that 1985. A short six years later, August 25th, 1991, the first Linux kernel was released on the comp.os.minix newsgroup. In 1994, while at the University of Ghent, Patrick set up a web page where anyone could contribute URLs to help people explore the Internet. Sound familiar? Yahoo started manually indexing the Internet around that time. Patrick's site was running on an old Spark machine. The fascinating part for him was that he was using shared source, and because the internet was built on shared source, he was able to be part of that by sharing as well. Later, when he moved into his first job, he was running a web server, a firewall, and other newer technologies. And that was, uh, yeah, that was my first kind of maybe sharing it to the world. Uh, it's something even you know first you receive a lot of open source and you use it but that at that time i was using it and, and kind of like embracing it to to run something so that was new uh, as an experience and then later when i moved later as part of the government ministry his team was doing the first of everything such as the first mail server the first dns server it was all running on three autocad stations part of the requirements of his ongoing projects was to buy proprietary software from vendors as a sysadmin it was frustrating to buy a compiler or a vendor tool and when it didn't work he had to wait for the vendor to provide updates yeah that's that's definitely the frustration if people are yelling at you right and and your only excuse is uh, you know, we're asking the vendor and we'll take like a week or a month and that that's no excuse. Uh, and that makes you feel powerless uh, at the, those times. So uh, that's been the reason why we've uh, 
you know, started taking the other route, mixing probably both, right? You know, sometimes it's, you get good support from vendors. It's, it's, uh, it's not like one or the other. Open source itself is also not the guarantee that you have good support or that it's easily written. But if there's a community that's supportive and it's open source, then you feel like a good citizen and a member to contribute. So, and that's probably another reason why we were so in love with open source, because if it didn't work, uh, we had an escape. Uh, and that's where I, I started digging more and more into kind of like helping or fixing or looking into the code. Um, and if, if that would have stayed propriety, that whole world would have kept close for me. In 2008, Patrick and his friends worked on a new project called SOS, Supporting Open Source. They had the idea that they could make a difference in support by running open source. The premise was that they could do a better job because they could actually fix things, not have to wait for people to fix it for them. In retrospect, uh, probably too early <laughs> in, the, in the mindset of people, but I think it helped us tremendously putting the first Apache, putting the first firewalls, the Linux machines and everything there, and the, the remote X servers, uh, all based on open source at that time. And we were just feeling productive with this, and we didn't need the huge budget again. The feeling in the team was that you were able to change your own destiny. You could fix things and learn things and share things with others. The belief in open source and open systems has been instrumental throughout Patrick's career. Uh, It's not the part of the least resistance, (laughs) Uh, but but yeah, it's still, you know, I guess it's in a way it's a fundamental belief whether that's the route you want to take and, and build this up as a community or you want to close close it and not share things to the world and, and, and kind of be afraid of uh, you know, competitive advantages in this. An underlying problem in the industry was the belief that robustness is something you could purchase versus something you support. Compounding the issue was the location of the proprietary resources. Usually they were in the United States. The span in proximity was difficult at times because of the cultural barriers and time zone differences. Then there was the issue of belief systems. And it always boiled down to, hey, we're outsourcer X. We have good ties with company something, or we have volume discounts. This brings up a way for us to make revenue. Um, We can't make revenue from your open source. And we have no guarantee that it's going to be solved within a certain SLA if we hit an issue. So they were kind of like preaching partly the opposite from where we say, well, if we have access and then we could probably find it and then we can do good, better support than having to wait. So, but that boils down somewhere in a belief system, I guess, in which of the the two you trust for good and for bad, I guess. The proprietary vendors always use security as a leverage for entry into enterprises. Their mantra became, we're on top of this. We have people hired for this. We have a team dedicated to security. The scales tipped towards open source, however, when large companies started using projects such as Apache for their web servers. 
This gave the technologist the impression that if XYZ company is using it, it can't be that bad. This observation, along with the lack of responsive support from vendors, continued to make open source more attractive. The realization that most, if not all, companies are using open source. This gave rise to support companies such as Red Hat and CentOS. It was the best of both worlds. By utilizing open source and offering a support contract, Companies felt more comfortable using open source while the technologists had the ability to fix and change the code as if, needed. If you can't fix it, uh, sorry, if, if nobody else will fix it and you have access to the source, I, I always believe that at least you have a chance of fixing it somehow yourself if it's really needed. And if that stays propriety or behind doors, that that's not happening. And even if you try money at companies, it's not happening. But is this, is this um, the compelling case for saying you need open source for security, yes or no? I'm, 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 I'm thinking I'm still personally on the fence uh, whether one model is better than the other, but it, it does give you a better view on things. It does make it peer-reviewed um, and a chance of being able to fix this. But you might not have the skills or the time or... <laughs> You know, to do it. So it, it doesn't maybe, you know, it, it might result in the same thing as buying the software. But is open source really the most important thing? Patrick thinks a better approach is to do it in layers of diversity and have multiple options, whether or not that is a proprietary solution. It's still the better approach is to do it in layers and diversity and and having multiple options. Uh, and whether that's proprietary, yes or no, it's more about the hardening of the security across the layers than depending on one decision in whether that's open source, yes or no, in, in that aspect. We'll be right back after the break. August 25th, 1991 is a day many people believe changed the history and trajectory of open source. That Sunday in August, Linus Torvald posted an email announcement of a project he was working on. Several weeks later, on Tuesday, September 17, he dropped the code, making it open and available to anyone who would like to use it and contribute to the project. It was the tipping point in what would become one of the most important open source projects in history. But when viewed through the lens of history, we come to realize that an event of this magnitude is not always what it appears to be. If one person does something, it it's um, I still believe it's in a way a chance that something's happened. It's the fact that others believed in this, and the fact that they believe is often that there's like a zeitgeist of people thinking the same thing. So. I'm not a big fan of, you know, reducing success or non-success by saying it's the one person who did this, uh, but it's um, was the right time, right moment, and then then people kind of responded to this. Um, the fact that he shared this was already a reaction on the proprietary. Uh, and, you know, being able to fork Linux or not and kind of building their own. But that I think that would have happened eventually. 
whether it was him or somebody else uh, in that perspective, uh, in my opinion. In 2000, open source development labs combined with the Free Standards Group to standardize Linux. This project morphed into the Linux Foundation in January of 2007 when it gained nonprofit status, funded and sponsored by a consortium of major technology vendors. When you think about it, where are the boundaries of one company putting their interests above those of the consortium when it comes to projects that are building standards? At first, Patrick had his doubts that this could work. Um, I'll be honest in the way that I, I, I have my doubts in the way that I've, I've, I've probably seen too much of the discussion about open standards or RFCs or whatever being kind of like written in certain directions that certain companies wanted in these kind of situations. But I also like the fact that there is a governance now and that there is a discussion and not one part is owning this. So I see the Linux Foundation probably more as a as a mediator in the discussions between those companies. But I love them to remain neutral and not take a stance whether we should do a certain thing, yes or no. When examining problems in the security space, ranging from scanning packages to API security or supply chain security, there are different ways of solving that problem or providing a solution. It's difficult to have these types of discussions in a competitive world. That's the advantage of the Linux Foundation in this scenario. It provides a neutral ground and safe environment for the discussion of proposed solutions with the industry benefiting through the creation of standards as a helping common baseline. And helping if there is no baseline... Because if there's no spec, it's anarchy, and you don't have a good chance of fixing the problem because, yeah, there is no standard, there is no way of doing this. The more you talk about these problems the more there is, they're carried by the industry. Uh, one company can't do this. And, and I think that's the reason why Sneak participates in, in several of the discussions or whatever that supply chain or anything else is that that kind of common discussion needs to happen there. And, and of course, everybody has their favorite pet project and you know what they want from the agenda and so on. So I, I, I think that's, that's normal in a competitive world. I think we're all conscious enough when we were coming to the foundation that it's a balance of multiple views on the problem and that kind of uh, strengthens quite often the solution and it also encourages the solution to be carried by multiple people in the industry so you can build on top of these things much easier than trying to come up with your own uh, ways of doing it. In 2010, Patrick started a small project developing a process for automating the building of virtual images with an operating system. Even though it was relatively successful, he dismissed it. What he didn't see coming was that someone could take a lot of the work that was done on the project and turn it into a commercial product. It made him start to question his approach to open source and licensing. It was discouraging to see other people building upon what he had done and turn it into a commercial success. So I, I kind of like dismissed it, but 
what I didn't see coming is that uh, a company or like at that time it turned into Packer. So somebody kind of took a lot of the work and turned this into a commercial thing. And uh, I could live with the fact that, you know, I dismissed it. I'm not a business person and, and that's fine. But I just wanted to highlight it like as one of the examples of doing things in the open and not having this, either the licensing, the copyright or something clearly put that it's sometimes discouraging of other people building on top of this kind of making more money or having better results or kind of have better success. And it's, I can only relate to it being frustrating. Uh, it's, it's not that it's, uh, you know, I've, I've lived through it over the years. So it's, but at that time it feels like when somebody copies your code, it feels uh, really weird. And uh, it, it, I'm not saying it shakes your belief in the open source, but it, it's, uh, it's tough at that time. Patrick started a new project in 2017, Zender, an online platform that helped content providers connect with their viewers. There were various interaction tools such as real-time chat, emoji polls, and photo challenges, which could be incorporated in the online video player of the content provider. There was live polling, sending of pictures, all the things we are now familiar with on the major social platforms. But in 2017, it was still in the experimental stage. Because of their continuous belief in open source, the team was sharing as much as they could on what they were learning. We were sharing this uh, as much as we can on what we learned. And I learned a ton about it, like doing DevOps, because you can talk about it all day, but you know, uh, it took us a year to figure out with the whole team and to make sure that we weren't doing things directly in production, right? So it, it takes time to build this kind of like muscle. At the end, we, we improved things. We, we were able to deploy it during live television shows in primetime TV, right? During the show, not a hitch. We had all the monitoring with everything there. So it was, a, you know, an amazing drive, a thrill to do real-time support when the producer says, please change this, go in, you just do it, right? So it's, uh, it's amazing. But along with the success came a hard business lesson. What I learned from it is that we were always looking for the bottleneck. And, you know, first it was engineering that was focused on, and then it was maybe hiring people was another bottleneck. And so every time I followed the ball of where's the bottleneck. And I think in the end, what turned out is that the bottleneck was we could build a more, the most robust system for primetime TV, but if nobody's willing to buy it, that was our bottleneck or we couldn't sell it good enough or like we weren't making money out of it. So I, that, that's kind of how I, I learned that the whole, you know, whether automation or DevOps or the IT team is just a small piece of running a successful business. And, you know, this one, we didn't succeed, maybe one in the future, but that's the learning that we did. But we were incredibly more open than all our competitors. We shared blog posts on how we did things. And I had a firm belief that it doesn't matter whether we share these things is because we can do these things better. And I believed in that, but Hey, if you can't sell it, you need to have money to, to not run out of gas in your team and hire more people to do the support. 
Eventually, the realization hit home that a project cannot continue to exist, no matter how exciting the solution, if you can't sell the product or generate income from it, and Zender TV was shut down. Many people in the software development community believe it's better to download and use open source than to do it yourself. Patrick sees open source as providing a SaaS service, more as a part of the company whose services need internal support. We need to do a better job at whatever dependency we rely on. So become friends with your open source, like fund them, help them make sure they're they're kind of uh, in a good shape, help your SaaS service that's delivering value for you and not just switch to the cheapest one without any, any feedback. And that's kind of where I believe is, it's easy to say they're the bottleneck and I'm, I'm going to move them out or I'm going to switch from one model to the other. I think it's important to, to keep that dialogue open, how we can both improve uh, in this perspective. And that's how I see a modern kind of enterprise work through these problems, uh, not just swapping out the supplier, not just swapping out any of the people working for them, uh, but kind of make sure that it, it gets aligned. And it's interesting now with the, the whole concept of autonomous teams where people are saying, well, everybody's autonomous and they have their own goals, but it becomes really hard if everybody has their own goals and they're not aligned. Are, are we working towards the same goal. <laughs> Open source is, uh, I see it as a supplier, uh, as part of the company, but the scary part of a supplier is that you don't control them as you would control them inside your company. That's something we need to learn. Like you can't ask to Amazon or somebody to change their service because it doesn't suit you. <laughs> uh, you can't change open source because they believe that is the certain feature, you know, the, or the vision they go with their project. But that kind of management of expectations and kind of working things out is uh, is probably how uh, it happens in anywhere in the company uh, between the different teams. There are over seven hundred projects currently being hosted by the Linux Foundation. One of the more interesting ones, according to Patrick, is SigStore. SigStore wants to improve supply chain technology for anyone using open source projects for creating new standards for signing, verifying, and protecting software. The project has 465 members from over 20 companies. It envisions a future where the integrity of what we build and use is up to standard. But Patrick has his eye on another project too the Linux Foundation AI and Data Project. As defined on the LFAI site, the mission of LFAI and Data is to build and support an open artificial intelligence and data community and drive open source innovation in the AI and data domains. Within that description, there is a hint that tells why Patrick is interested in the project. While most people focus on the AI aspect, there is also a not-so-apparent resource, the data that these types of projects can provide. Recently, with 
me trying to get into machine learning, I learned that in that world, you can share your source quite easily, but it's the data that makes it interest. So I, I'm, I'm probably going to look also into the data initiatives of the open source or the Linux foundation, how we can kind of uh, open source models or data sets uh, in that way. As we talked about what to expect in the next phase of the Linux Foundation with highly visible projects such as LF Networking, OpenSSF, the AI and Data Project, and the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, it naturally led to how the Linux Foundation can help the open source community the most. The immediate response? Anything that helps towards staying neutral. And that's probably always mm. going to be my biggest concern for any of those consortia that claim they're neutral, but I know how hard it is to be, you know, moved around by companies and kind of, you know, having angles or people asking things for you or lobbying. So anything that would help there, whether that's a rotation, whether that's like limiting certain things or anything there, uh, I would stress that that's probably for the survival of the Linux Foundation, probably the most important. That, that's the core. Today's episode was brought to you by the OpenSSF Project and the Linux Foundation. Thank you to the team at the Linux Foundation for making this show possible. The Untold Stories of Open Source is created with support from Melissa Schmidt, Chip Stewart, James McLeod, Jim Zemlin, Derek Weeks, and the entire team at the OpenSSF Project. Until next time, thank you for your support and contributions to the open source community.